Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, some big books there in the middle. We're looking for Ezekiel chapter 1. Tonight is the book sermon. Great deal to cover. The southern kingdom of Judah saw the beginning of the end in the year 605 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered the city. At that time, as a show of strength and of ownership, he took all of the nobles of the land of Babylon with him and he set up, as we would a vassal king, his own puppet king, we might call it, in Jerusalem. It was at that time in 605 B.C. that Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael went to Babylon as princes in Jerusalem. It was seven years later in the year 597 B.C. that there would be a second, what we call a deportation, a removal of people from Jerusalem into the land of Babylon, a second deportation of Israelites. It was at this time that King Jehoiachin went into captivity. And it was also at this time that, well, many went into captivity at that time, and one of those that went into captivity in this time, seven years after the initial deportation in 597 B.C., was a young man named Ezekiel. He was a Levite. He had not yet gotten to the point where he could exercise his priestly service. He ended up living in what we might call a refugee camp in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar. You see it's C-H-E-B-A-R in the scriptures. That's kind of a hard curse on Kibar. Um, uh, throughout the, the time of preaching, I might call it Chibar because that's what I've always called it. Um, but the, the correct pronunciation is Kibar. This river was actually a canal dug from the Euphrates River in that land of the Chaldeans near Babylon flowing east of the city. According to Ezekiel 1 verse 1, Ezekiel was 30 years old when he saw his first vision. He says it was in the fifth year of the king's captivity or in the year 593 B.C. So Ezekiel was deported when he was 25 years old. He began his ministry five years later when he was 30 years old. His vision in Ezekiel 1 verse 1 would be the first of 27 years of prophecy unto the nation of Israel and to other nations as well. As with most prophecies in the Bible, the point of the prophecy is not as much to tell the future or to learn the future. The point is to express the character of God and then to call upon those who read the prophecy to align themselves with God. We see that all throughout the scriptures. Ezekiel will prophesy of things that are to come. But the point is not that people would know the future. The point is that they would understand what's coming and that they would repent that they would fall down on their knees before God, that they would align themselves with God, that they would understand who God is. We will see this very clearly. It will become very apparent as we step into the book of Ezekiel. God will spend years proclaiming to the nation what is about to take place. He will warn them again and again and again. But what He's really trying to do is cause them to turn away from their wickedness and turn back to God. 
And that is what we will learn through the book of Ezekiel as well. In this book sermon today, we're going to see four responses. Four responses that every person in this room, every person listening on the internet, every person should have to the character and attributes of the God that we serve, the God of the universe. Let's go ahead and jump right into those attributes this evening. The first we see in Ezekiel 1.1 through Ezekiel 3.15, God's attributes compel our yieldedness. God's attributes compel our yieldedness. What response should we have to the character and attributes of God? Well, it should be a response of yieldedness. The book of Ezekiel begins in a very, very unique way. Ezekiel sees a vision. He sees a vision unlike any vision we would see throughout the whole of Scripture. There are some elements of the vision that we see uh, repeated in the book of Revelation. There's some elements of the vision that we might see in Isaiah's vision, in Isaiah chapter 6, but it really is unlike anything you'll find anywhere else in Scripture. He begins by seeing a fiery whirlwind, and out of that whirlwind comes four creatures. They have the bodies of, of men. They look like men. They're, they're, they're torsos, as it were. But they have wings, they have four faces, they have feet like calves' feet. Very strange looking creatures. With these creatures are wheels within wheels. These wheels within wheels are moving but never turning. These creatures are moving but never turning. Upon all of these creatures and upon all of these wheels there are eyes everywhere. Ezekiel looks above these creatures and there's a firmament, there's a, there's a, a, a sky, there's a, a canopy. And above that firmament he sees a throne. This throne is radiant in glory. Verse 28 tells us that all of these things of chapter 1 tells us that all of these things which Ezekiel saw, if you look at that verse with me, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What he saw was the glory of the Lord. As one might expect, this vision had a tremendous impact upon Ezekiel. Verse 28 tells us that Ezekiel fell upon his face. But all of this, this vision, was only to prepare the heart of Ezekiel for the task that God had to him to perform. And that task is found in Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 1 through Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 5. The scriptures tell us that he was sent to the nation of Israel. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. He was sent not to convince but to proclaim. Look at verse 5. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. You are called, Ezekiel, to go. You are called to proclaim. You're not called to convince, but you're called to get the message out. He was sent not to deliver his own message, but to deliver God's message. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee unto the house of... Of Israel and speak with my words unto them. Speak with my words unto them. Ezekiel's task was very exclusive both in scope and in purpose. So much so that God did something very unique unto Ezekiel. Look at chapter 3 verses 22 through 27. 
Scripture saying, The hand of the Lord was upon me, was there upon me, and he said unto me, Arise, go forth into the plain, and I will there talk with thee. Then I arose and went forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there as the glory which I saw by the river of Kibar, and I fell on my face. Then the Spirit entered into me and set me upon my feet and spake with me and said unto me, Go, shut thyself within thine house. But thou, O son of man, behold, they shall put bands upon thee, they shall bind thee with them, and thou shalt not go out among them. And I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth, that thou shalt be dumb, and shalt not be to them a reprover. For they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with thee, I will open thy mouth, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, He that heareth, let him hear, and he that forbeareth, let him forbear, for they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel was made unable to speak, except in those times that the Lord gave him the ability to utter the message of God. Could you imagine? The glory of the Lord appears to Ezekiel, and God says, Ezekiel, I have a message for you to tell. This message is not going to make you a popular man. This message is going to make you hated. They are going to not, they're, they're going to reject your message. They're not going to listen to your message. They are going to scorn you. They are going to put you in bands. In other words, tie you up. They're going to throw you in prison. They're going to imprison you for your message. And by the way, you may, ne- you may not say one word. I am cutting off your ability to speak except for when I have a message for you to tell. Wow. What a calling. What a ministry. And you know, God has a calling for each of us. At the very least, that calling includes salvation by belief in Jesus Christ. At the very least, that calling includes going and making disciples. At the very least, that calling includes us both in word and in deed expressing the gospel of Jesus Christ for others that calling is to a certain workplace environment or to a certain school or to a certain mission field or perhaps to a certain church. As we live out these Christian lives, walking daily with Jesus Christ, living moment by moment in the Spirit of God, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the call of God has given to each of us an expectation of yieldedness. The attributes of God, the calling of God, demand our yieldedness. See, every person knows in this room that we are to be yielded to God. But the Christian life is not about what we know, it's about what we live. It's not about what we talk, it's about how we walk. When Ezekiel was confronted with the holiness and the majesty of God, he realized better than he ever had before that God's worthiness was unto his yieldedness. God is worthy of my every sacrifice. God is worthy of my every priority. God is worthy of my every breath being used to serve him. God is worthy. God called Ezekiel to dedicate his life to a message regardless of that message's success. God called Ezekiel to pour everything he had and all that he held dear into a ministry of ridicule. God will ask Ezekiel to do things that you and I could not even imagine. God will call upon Ezekiel to give of his time, to give of his reputation, to give of his ability to speak, 
to give of his distinctives even as a Levitical priest. And as we'll see a little bit later on in the service and as we get later on in the book, God will even take away from Ezekiel his wife. God will allow Ezekiel's wife to die. And he will specifically tell Ezekiel, you are forbidden to mourn for her. He will take away Ezekiel's wife and forbid Ezekiel to mourn for her as a testimony against Israel. Say, Pastor, that doesn't sound very nice. We'll get there. You will understand it when we get there. What sacrifices God would ask Ezekiel to make? What sacrifices has God asked you to make? No, whatever sacrifices He has asked you to make for the ministry, whatever areas of your life God has said, you need to yield that to me for your ministry, rest assured, He has called other men to make great sacrifices as well. And even if you were called to make a greater sacrifice than anyone else ever did, which we know is impossible for the epitome of sacrifices found in Jesus Christ, it would be worth it. Because God's attributes, His holiness, His goodness, His faithfulness, His righteousness is worthy of every possible sacrifice that God could call us to make. God is God. Therefore, He is worthy of all that we could give and so much more. God's attributes, it compels our yieldedness. Our yieldedness to His will. Our yieldedness to His plan. Our yieldedness to His expectations. Second point, in chapters 4 through 24, nice big chunk there, God's attributes demand our obedience. God's attributes demand our obedience. So they compel our yieldedness, they also demand our obedience. Chapters 4 through 24 contain signs and prophecies by Ezekiel, by God through Ezekiel, directly against the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. You will note that I have chosen, if you have your outline there, to break up these prophecies by time. I couldn't find any other outline of any commentary that broke up Ezekiel's prophecies by time. But I thought that it would be helpful and important. I don't know if Ezekiel wrote down every prophecy that he gave, but if so... It gives you an idea of how many times God allowed him to speak until the time that God opened his mouth again. Ezekiel is unique in that he, above any other prophet, carefully chronicles the exact date of each major communication. Why does Ezekiel do this? Well, most likely, he did it to show a progression of prophecies leading up to their eventual fulfillment and to show how these prophecies changed when Jerusalem was destroyed. Chapters 4 through 24 is all about prophesying about Jerusalem's destruction and Judah's necessity of repentance. But the prophecies are going to change dramatically at the end of chapter 24. And we'll see why in just a little bit. These 20 chapters are a warning of repentance against the destruction of Jerusalem that would surely come if Judah did not repent of their sin. God reveals in chapter 8 that the degree of wickedness in Jerusalem was deeper than anyone could have imagined. 
The people and their leaders were steeped in idolatry. Even the very priests of Jehovah were secretly worshiping idols in the very temple itself. God shows Ezekiel spiritual abominations one after another, each worse than the one before. And it is within this context that Ezekiel sees the worst thing he could possibly imagine. In chapter 9, Ezekiel watches as the glory of God, the glory that is often called in the Hebrew the Shekinah glory, the glory that rested above the mercy seat between the two cherubims. We are going to see in Ezekiel chapter 9, and Ezekiel is going to watch in a vision as the glory of God moves from above the mercy seat to the threshold of the temple. From the threshold of the temple to the eastern gate. From the eastern gate to the Mount of Olives, where it will arise into heaven and the glory of God departs from Israel. The glory of the Lord is no longer resting above the Ark of the Covenant. It departs from Israel. God says, I will not abide among an unholy nation. He would no longer abide in Jerusalem. He departs. The chapters continue. Prophecy after prophecy, sign after sign, parable after parable, all directed toward this goal of Judah repenting of her sin before God was forced to destroy the city of Jerusalem. The section ends in chapter 24. Approximately four and a half years after Ezekiel began his warnings, Jerusalem is besieged. The great consequences for their stubborn rebellion and abject disobedience come to pass. Israel as a nation had lived for many years giving lip service to God, but with a heart and with actions that denied Him. God sent prophets. Israel ignored the prophets, persecuted the prophets, killed the prophets, imprisoned the prophets. God sent natural disasters, plagues, famines. They hardened themselves defiantly, said, we will rebuild, we will get stronger, we will endure, rather than humbling themselves before God. And though the mercy of God had a depth that we can only fathom, there is indeed a time when the cup of God's mercy overflows into judgment. So it is today, both in our lives and in the lives of our nation, as Jonah sat in the belly of the whale, or belly of the great fish, in Jonah 2. He said these words in verse 8. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Those who hold to false gods, lying vanities. Those who hold to false priorities, lying vanities. Those who hold to false perceptions of what this life is about, lying vanities. Those who place the love of this world above the love for the true of the living God forsake the mercy that God has reserved for them. Now, the church is not Israel. But on the authority of 1 Peter 2 verse 9, we are indeed a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. The United States is not a nation under the covenant of Israel, the Mosaic covenant. But Psalm 33 verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Yeah, the United States once received the blessings of a nation whose God was the Lord. It does not receive those blessings any longer. And the warnings ring across this land. 
Men are declaring it from the pulpits. Signs of judgment appear daily in the newspaper. School shootings, mass bombings, great natural disasters. Yet for all of these things, yet for all of the men in the pulpits around this nation that are calling for repentance, this nation does not repent. This nation hardens itself. It turns away from God. It will not humble itself before God. It turns to lying vanities and therefore this nation has forsaken its own mercy. The church in the West was once a people set apart unto God. The church is no longer this. The Western church is no longer this people set apart unto God. The Western church has become fearful confused and tainted by the philosophies of the world. And warnings ring out across this nation. A full two-thirds of all the young people leave the church as soon as they are out on their own. Divorce rates within the church are as high or higher than divorce rates outside of the church. Yet for all of this, the church does not see, the church does not repent, the church does not humble themselves before God, the church turns to themselves, they harden themselves, they seek to pick themselves up And in doing so, we have turned to lying vanities and we have forsaken our own mercy. A wise man once said, He who does not learn from history is destined to repeat it. Paul said in Romans chapter 15 verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. If we do not learn to obey as God's people, if we do not learn to humble ourselves before God, to give ourselves unto God, to seek God's face, to forsake lying vanities, then we too will forsake our own mercy. See, God's attributes should compel us unto yieldedness. God's attributes demand our obedience. Third lesson, God's attributes direct our understanding. God's attributes direct our understanding. This is found in chapters 25 through 32. The third section of the book, chapters 25 through 32, contain prophecies not against Israel this time. That was chapters 4 through 24. But in 25 through 32, these are prophecies against the nations. God has used numerous nations at various times throughout Israel's history to judge them for their sin. He used Edom. He used Moab. He used Ammon. He used the Amorites. He used the Amalekites. He used Babylon. He used Egypt. But just because God had used these nations to judge Israel, this does not mean that these nations would not be responsible for their own sin. This does not mean that they would not be responsible for their choices. So those who sought Israel's destruction throughout time, and even those who simply rejoiced over Israel's destruction, would be judged for their sin. God declares the judgment of many nations in these chapters. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyrus, and Egypt. God taught through Ezekiel in chapter 18 that every man would bear his own sin, that no father would die for his children's sin, nor would children die for their father's sin. The destruction of these nations is for our understanding. Though God might use the wickedness of a nation, 
or a man to serve his will, that man will still answer for his sins. That man will still be accountable for his sins, even if God, in his wisdom, uses that man's sin to further his purposes on this earth. God will still judge a man for his sin. As we look at the destruction of the nations, we must allow them to direct our understanding. That's our third point. God's attributes direct our understanding. The 20th century has seen evil on a national scale that has never been recorded in prior history. Hitler in Germany, Lenin and Stalin in Russia, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, Mao Zedong in China, among a long and large list of others. Better than 100 million people have died at the hands of these wicked men outside of war. Ezekiel 25-32 reminds us that these nations, though God may have used them to further His purposes, these nations are accountable before God. So too is our nation. Our nation is also accountable before God. We need to pray for our nation, folks. We need to pray that God would help our nation to do that which is right because this nation will be held accountable by God for its sin. God's attributes compel our yieldedness. God's attributes demand our obedience. God's attributes direct our understanding. We can understand the times as we understand God's attributes. Fourth and finally this evening, God's attributes secure our hope. God's attributes secure our hope. This is found in chapters 32 through 48. Chapters 32 through 48 are chapters of hope. I mean, imagine with me what's happened. And this has been over a span of 27 years. God calls Ezekiel. God spends five years prophesying against Judah. God spends seven years prophesying against the nations. But there's a time, there's a point where Ezekiel's ministry transitions into a ministry of hope. The majority of what we will read from chapter 32 onward is unfulfilled to this day. God begins by restating the judgment on the nations in chapter 32, restating Ezekiel's call in chapter 33. Near the end of chapter 33, at least seven years, at least seven years after Ezekiel's ministry has begun, God finally gives Ezekiel back his ability to speak. Could you imagine? God calls Ezekiel and God says, you will not be able to speak except when I speak through you. For at least seven years, Ezekiel cannot speak. He can perhaps open his mouth, but nothing comes out until God has something to say through him. What a yielded man of God. But Ezekiel's ministry wasn't over. He still had 20 years of ministry left, in fact. In chapter 34, God condemns the false shepherds of Israel, the spiritual leaders of God's people who fleeced the flock instead of guiding them unto God. God says the judgment upon these shepherds would be great. 
And God promised Israel that He would remove these false shepherds. That He would remove these false priests. That He would remove these false prophets. And that He would step in and become Ezekiel, or Ezekiel's, become Israel's true shepherd. That He would step onto the scene and lead His people into godliness. We have experienced this prophecy reiterated in the book of John, when we walk through the book of John. Jesus Christ would tell His disciples in John 10, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd giveth His life for the sheep. When Jesus declared that prophecy in John 10, He was declaring Himself to be God, who promised that God Himself would become the Shepherd of Israel. Jesus Christ was saying, I am that Shepherd. God, Jehovah God promised you in Ezekiel hope. He promised to judge the false shepherds and to come and be your true shepherd. Here I am. God in flesh. The true shepherd. Jesus declared Himself to be the fulfillment of that prophecy made 500 years prior. But, the problem was, as we know from the book of John, the people rejected their shepherd. And the fulfillment of that promise will not be complete until Jesus Christ returns and His feet touch the Mount of Olives. And as the Old Testament prophets tell us, they will look upon Him whom they have pierced and they will believe. And Jesus Christ will finally be able to be the true shepherd that He promised He would be. Chapters 36 and 37 are prophecies of restoration for Israel. Restoration of life. Restoration of strength. Prophecies which again will not find complete fulfillment until after the tribulation. Until after that time um, that we call the time of Jacob's trouble. In chapters 38 and 39, Jesus, excuse me, Ezekiel describes the time just before the second coming. A time when there's a ruler named Gog of Magog. And this ruler will come up against Israel. God declares in these verses the destruction of Gog, the destruction of Magog, the destruction of his allies. The fulfillment of these verses will play out in the very last days of the tribulation, just before Christ's return. In chapters 40-48, through 48, the final nine chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel will describe a temple. A temple complex unlike anything that Israel has ever seen before. Unlike anything that has ever been in Jerusalem. Gigantic. As a matter of fact, this temple is bigger than the Temple Mount. If you were to look on a map and you were to look at Israel today and you were to look at Jerusalem, you'd see the Temple Mount. The place where Solomon's temple was. The place where Herod's temple was. The place where today the Dome of the Rock is. And if you were to look at that Temple Mountain, you were to work out all of the math and all of the measurements, what you would find is that the temple that's described in Ezekiel 40 through 48 is bigger than the entire mountain. Clearly, this is not a temple that we've seen yet. The land, when we, when we get into Ezekiel 40 through 48, the land of Israel is at peace. The people of Israel have been regathered to their land. And there's something even more significant about this temple. See, way back in chapter 9 of Ezekiel, we recall he watched the glory of the Lord depart from the temple 
and rise up from the Mount of Olives. Well, as Ezekiel is seeing the vision of, the, of this temple, this grand, glorious temple, he watches as the glory of the Lord re-enters the temple. He watches as the glory of the Lord returns to Jerusalem. And look with me in Ezekiel 48, verse 35. If you turn all the way to the very last verse of the writings of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel says this, It was round about 18,000 measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. God had promised that Jerusalem would be the place where His name would always be. God promised this to David in 2 Samuel 7. And here at the very end of this prophecy of Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord re-enter the temple and Ezekiel says the name of the city will forever be the Lord is there. Prophecy of hope. Prophecy of joy. Prophecy of restoration. See, God's attributes don't just compel us to be yielded. God's attributes don't just demand our obedience. God's attributes don't just direct our understanding, but they also secure our hope. See, because God is a faithful God. And where God had promised to David, and God had promised to Solomon, and God had promised through the prophets that Israel will be a nation, that God will shepherd His people, that He will sit on the throne in Jerusalem. That He will rule and reign in righteousness. Here we see the faithfulness of God. The culmination of Israel's hopes. The time when all that God has promised to the nation of Israel will finally come to pass. But it will not be without great chastening. That time of the tribulation. Our God is holy. Our God is righteous. Our God is just. The nation of Israel has had a difficult and bumpy road since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Roman Empire. They have gone through great persecution. They have gone through attempted genocide with the Nazis in Germany. But on the authority of Scripture, I can tell you the worst is yet to come for Israel. The tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble will be a time of persecution unlike anything the Jews have ever seen, ever experienced. But God is not only holy and righteous and just, God will not only chasten them back to Himself, but God is also faithful. God is merciful. And God is true. God will not forget His promises. He will faithfully perform the promises that He has given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to Solomon, to Zerubbabel, to Nehemiah, to Ezra. God will fulfill the promises that He's given. Every word will come to pass. And God is that same God for you and I today. When we sin against God, there will be consequences. There are those under the sound of my voice who are living the consequences of your sin. We live in a day of uncertainty for Christians. Many believers around the world are hated, beaten, 
killed for their faith. Read about the persecutions of the Christians in Islamic countries. Churches are being burned. Whole communities are being ransacked and destroyed. Families are being left fatherless, motherless. People are being stoned. People are being beaten. People are being killed because they claim the name of Christ. But rest assured, Christian, there is always hope with God. And what secures that hope? It's not a positive outlook on life. It's not me and my therapies and my ability to control my negative karma. Our hope rests in Christ alone. It is the hope of righteousness. And these are the promises of God. The reality of all that we have seen and all that we will see is rooted in the very character of God. And that is Ezekiel. I look forward to walking through the entire book with you. I trust that you're looking forward to it as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this tremendous book of Scripture. We pray that you would humble us before you as we look at the mighty hand of God. That we would humbly yield ourselves to you. We pray that it would compel us unto dramatic steps of obedience in our lives. We pray that it would work in us the necessity of serving you with everything that we have. Father, we pray that it would direct our understanding, that as we learn of you, as we learn of what Ezekiel saw, that it would help us understand what you have for us, your people, in the days to come. And finally, Father, we do pray that you would help us never to forget of the hope that we have in Christ. That we would understand the fulfillments found in your word, and that it would give us a passionate, dedicated hope in what is to come. May we live it, may we understand it, may we know it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.